1: And thanks for listening.
0: Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One. Climate One is a leadership dialogue on energy, the economy, and the environment that discusses the transition to a prosperous and clean energy future. Our honored guest today is Jim Lentz, President and Chief Operating Officer of Toyota Motor Sales USA, and a member of that company's board of directors. He has overall responsibility for sales, marketing, and distribution for Toyota, Scion, and Lexus products in the United States. So please welcome Jim Lentz to the Commonwealth Club.
1: Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Now, let's imagine for a moment that a very strange thing happens to each and every one of you tonight. While you're fast asleep, all the cars on earth disappear. Now, now, now. Unaware, you come out in the morning to get in your car and it's gone. There's nothing there and there's no sign that it ever existed. And you're not alone. Same things happen to all your neighbors. And you find out from the early morning news that the same things happen to every car and truck all over the world? What would you do? How would you get to work? How would you get your kids to school? How would you go to the grocery store or get rushed to the hospital? Suddenly, the American way of life that we all enjoy is completely gone. And what if there's no quick solution? Imagine the changes that you'd have to make, the strain it would put on your relationships, your pocketbook, and your future plans. Heck, imagine how you get your teenagers to the mall in the morning. And you wouldn't be alone because society as we know it would have changed to the maximum. Travel would be extremely difficult, commerce strained, and you'd have limited options, and those limited options would become your new way of life. In short, our world would be turned upside down. Okay, we can snap out of this imaginary nightmare for now. Come back to the present and everything's going to be just fine. When we're finished here tonight, your reliable car will keep you warm and get you home safely to your loved ones. I tell this story because it vividly illustrates the crucial role the automobile plays in all of our lives. No other product in American life does so much for us. It's the key connection to our lifestyle and to our world. And since we can't live without it, we need to find a way to live with it in harmony with our environment and with our planet. And that's what I'd like to talk to you tonight, the vital impact cars make on our lives, the economy, and on our future, and what we as automakers are doing to make sure that they're a benefit and not a burden to society. First, let me just say that I'm very honored to speak to the Commonwealth Club of California. This is the first and the biggest public affairs forum in the United States. And in this world of rush communication and sound bites, the Commonwealth Club is an oasis of sanity, clarity, and understanding. You provide a public service by showing us the value of face-to-face communications. And from what I understand, you're a heck of a lot of fun, too. I mean, where else can you come and hear the director of the CIA or discuss economics? And learn how to reinvent your body from Deepak Chopra. And that's just the few speakers you've had in this last month alone. You helped make the Bay Area one of the foremost places for progressive thinking in the entire world. And I know this because I used to live up here. I managed Toyota's regional sales office from 1995 to 2000. And it was a marvelous experience for myself, my wife, and my two sons growing up. Ah, life in San Francisco. I remember finding a downtown parking space right near this destination could move you to tears. (laughs) In addition, I love this area because it's the hybrid car capital of the entire world. More hybrids are sold here than anywhere else. In fact, the Bay Area accounts for more than one out of every ten hybrids bought in this country. And three of our top ten Prius dealers are based here, including nearby San Francisco Toyota. So thank you all for that. You're showing the rest of the world that cars can and are changing for the better and living more in harmony with our overall environment. You know, I began tonight by making the case that cars play a crucial role in our lives every day. But it goes much deeper than that. A few years back, a poll found that Americans love their cars so much that they talk to them, they name them, they adorn them with trinkets and they involve them in life's most significant events in fact 90% of respondents admitted singing in their cars more than half said they talk to their cars and one out of four people give their cars a nickname and that love affair between people and cars continues today recently roper reports conducted a poll with americans on what they would be willing to get, least willing to give up during the recession and guess what People said that they were less willing to give up the convenience of their cars than their televisions, their cell phones, their Blackberries, or their vacations. Now, why this kind of reaction? Well, I think it's because the automobile is one of the most liberating inventions of all time. A car gives us the means uh, and freedom to go anywhere at any time for any reason. In short, cars enrich our lives. Or, as the Army might say, cars allow you to be all that you can be. Cars not only make an enormous impact on our personal lives, they make a huge impact on the economy. America's auto industry is the engine that drives the economy. No other single industry supports U.S. manufacturing as much or generates more retail sales or employment. Nearly 4% of the U.S. domestic product is auto-related. And auto suppliers operate in all 50 states to produce some of the 3,000 parts found in today's cars. And the auto industry is responsible for one in 10 jobs in the United States, In their good-paying jobs, with workers receiving $335 billion a year in overall compensation. Let's put that in perspective. That's more than the total market value of the world's most profitable company, ExxonMobil. And that's not all, because automakers and suppliers are among the largest purchasers of steel, aluminum, rubber, textiles, and computer chips in the entire world. In fact, with 25 to 70 microcontrol chips in today's cars, the auto industry rivals the computer industry in the use of computer chips. In Toyota's case, the breadth of our presence here and our economic impact on the American economy surprises quite a few people. We're celebrating 52 years in the United States, and we now operate 14 manufacturing plants in North America, along with a design studio in California, a state-of-the-art test track in Arizona, and an R&D center in Michigan that we recently expanded to accommodate 1,000 engineers. Today, Toyota's total investment in the United States stands at $18.2 billion, and we directly employ nearly 34,000 Americans. That's more than General Mills, Texas Instruments, or Mattel. And when you add dealers, suppliers, and spinoff jobs, the Michigan-based Center for Automotive Research says that Toyota contributes more than 380,000 American jobs. That's equal to a city the size of Miami. Now, let me take a moment and acknowledge that Toyota realizes that the upcoming closure of the Numi Auto Plant in nearby Fremont, is going to be a blow to this area. We didn't want to stop ordering products from there. We've had a good 25-year relationship with the union, with Bay Area workers, and with the local community. But unfortunately, when General Motors abruptly, abruptly pulled out of our joint venture in August, it severely undermined the economic viability of the plant and precipitated the situation. Now, to their credit, state and Bay Area agencies went out of their way to offer help, but the numbers still didn't add up. So it was an extremely tough decision, and we've taken our lumps for it. However, we believe in doing our part. So although Numi is an independent company, Toyota will work cooperatively with the plant and local agencies where applicable and where we can to help Numi provide transition support to team members, suppliers, as well as the local community. And while Numi may be closing, Toyota remains heavily invested in California with sales and production facilities up and down the state. In total, Toyota's invested $2.3 billion in the Golden State, and along with our dealers, we employ employ 28,000 people right here in California. And our contributions to the state and country go well beyond employment numbers. Our highly regarded Toyota production system, which we openly share with anyone who asks for it has been adopted by hospitals, airports, even churches so that they can operate more efficiently. And our sales associates here in America contribute their money generously to a variety of charities as part of our annual corporate contribution program. And results just came in for this year's program. And during this very difficult financial time, our associates, along with Company Matching, raised more than $2.8 million to help others in need. And our team members at our manufacturing facilities are also very generous. As an example, our production employees at our big Kentucky plant typically, along with the company, contribute over a million dollars a year to the local United Way. And our employees also volunteer generously of their personal time to many worthwhile nonprofit groups. In fact, we estimate that Toyota Associates across the country volunteer more than 116,000 hours each year to charity. So when you add it all up, there are very few industries in this world that pack the economic punch and non-tangible benefits than does the auto industry. And we're not the only nation that recognizes that. Great Britain, Germany, Italy, and Japan all rose to economic prominence by fostering a strong automotive industry. That's why Brazil, Russia, India, and China, the so-called BRICS countries, are plowing money into their fledgling auto business. These nations know that the auto industry is a powerful economic driver that provides mobility for people and commerce and creates long-term prosperity. And it's a smart bet. A recent Booz & Company report notes that when per capita income rises in developing countries, rates of car ownerships increase, thus improving personal income, and stimulating further economic development. And Brazil, Russia, India, and China may soon have company because the Boo study says that Argentina, Indonesia, Mexico, Thailand, and Turkey are also on the verge of much greater car ownership. So there's lots of opportunity for auto industry growth in the future, but that expansion creates a dilemma for us as a society. How do we provide mobility that will free people to to be more successful without permanently damaging the planet that we all love? Well, that leads me to my third key point of the night, that cars will play a vital role in our future. We know we won't give them up, but we also know that we can't continue on the same automotive path we've followed for the past century. The first hundred years of the auto industry were about expansion and exploration. The second century is about innovation and about harmony. Since we can't live with cars in their current form, and we can't live without the benefits they bring, we have to find a better way. And that's what Toyota and other major automakers are doing today, developing better cars and other creative mobility solutions. To do that, we're concentrating on two critical areas, increasing fuel economy and reducing emissions that harm our planet. On air pollution, we're making great progress. Using various technologies and cleaner fuels, today's cars are 99% cleaner than those from the 1970s. 99%. But what about CO2 and other greenhouse gases? Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Some people believe that automobiles are the worst offenders on CO2, but that's not the case. In the United States, autos account for about 17% of all man-made carbon dioxide emissions, less than a fifth of the total. Now, that's not low enough, but it's important to understand that although cars and trucks are one of the most visible sources of greenhouse gases in America, they're not the major contributor. And Toyota's long-supported global economy-wide reductions of greenhouse gases. And we're committed to working with the U.S. and other governments to achieve these reductions in every market that we operate. And our industry as a whole recently made a strong commitment to cut greenhouse gasses by committing to achieve higher federal mileage standards. We'll do that by burning less gas because CO2 emissions are directly related to fuel consumption. Higher mileage means less carbon dioxide coming out of the tailpipe. How much less? Well, our industry is committed to 30% reduction by 2020, nearly a third less than today's emissions. Think about that for a minute. That's the equivalent to closing 50 mid-sized coal-fired power plants. Fifty. Now, before I get any letters from the coal industry, let me acknowledge that they're working hard as well on developing clean-burning technologies. In any event, the auto industry is making a sizable commitment that will make it a leader in reduction on CO2. And we're not stopping there. The auto industry spends $86 billion a year on research and development more than any other manufacturing industry. And I'm proud to note that Toyota is ranked by Booz Company as number one corporation in R&D. We spend, on average, about $9 billion a year. It's about a million dollars an hour. Even better, our industry's massive research is starting to pay off. According to the Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers, there are more than 50 technologies available this year in 2009 to help reduce emissions, increase mileage, and allow vehicles to run on clean fuels. They range from variable valve timing and stratified charge combustion to superchargers, direct injection, and sophisticated gas-electric hybrids found in vehicles like our Prius. In fact, according to the recently released Federal Fuel Economy Guide, in 2010, consumers can select for more than 193 cars and trucks that achieved 30 miles per gallon or greater on the highway. And the amazing number is that's a 47% increase from just 2009. So where do we go from here? Well, one of our first assignments as an industry is to keep refining the internal combustion engine to make it as efficient as we possibly can. Right now, automotive engineers and labs around the world are tinkering with refinements that will help gas engines eke out even more mileage than today's super-efficient engines. Beyond that, the auto industry will introduce dozens of new gas-electric hybrids and advanced diesels over the next few years. Those will save even more fuel and further reduce harmful emissions. I've talked about how clean today's cars are compared to those of the 70s, but did you know that the Prius emits 70% fewer smog-forming emissions than the average vehicle on the road today? It's true, so imagine what can be done when all major automakers start selling more hybrids. And you know that day's coming because Porsche, Lamborghini, and Ferrari have all reported that they're going to be building hybrid vehicles in the future. After that, you'll see plug-in hybrids, pure electric vehicles, and eventually hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Yes, we still need to do a lot of work working out some of the difficult issues with all these powertrains in terms of technical hurdles, cost, range, as well as fuel and charging stations, but the potential is very, very real. In fact, Toyota will launch a lithium-ion battery Prius plug-in program early next year, and I'm proud to announce that of the 150 plug-ins that will be coming to the United States, some of those are going to end up right here in the Bay Area, because we know that this area supports environmentally advanced vehicles, and we need your help to help perfect the product so it's ready for consumer use down the road. The auto industry is also making great progress on hydrogen fuel cell vehicles to create electricity from hydrogen and oxygen without generating any harmful emissions. The industry is exploring all of these technology fronts because there's no one solution for future mobility needs, but the need for many. After all, what's good for the Bay Area may not be the best thing for Shanghai or Sydney or Sao Paulo. Now, along with developing better products... Toyota and other automakers are taking a more holistic approach to future mobility. We know it's not just about the car anymore, but it's how the car can work in harmony with diverse modes of transportation, ranging from single-person pods to high-speed magnetic levitation trains. To do that, Toyota is addressing four key areas that will help us achieve what we call sustainable mobility. First, we must address the vehicles themselves, And I've talked a lot about that tonight and about the progress that we're making on this front. Second, we must address the urban environment, where these new technologies will live. In the future, we see mixed mobility, combining intelligent highways and mass transit, bike and walking paths, shared vehicles, recharging kiosks, and hydrogen fueling stations. Third, we must address the need to develop public and private partnerships, They will include energy and transportation companies along with universities and government agencies working together to bring new technologies to market. For example, Toyota recently joined the Smart Grid City Project, a public-private partnership in Boulder, Colorado, the first fully functional smart grid city in the entire world. This large-scale effort is using improvements in electrical generation and real-time communications to help homes and business use electricity much more efficiently. And that includes the charging of 10 plug-in Prius vehicles that we'll provide to this project. By working in partnership with Accel Energy, the Federal National Renewable Energy Lab and the University of Colorado, we'll be able to determine vehicle charging patterns, how the vehicles interact in the electrical grid and consumer expectations that will help us develop future plug-ins as well as pure electric vehicles. The Boulder Project will also help us tackle the fourth key area of sustainable mobility. That's addressing the energy that will power advanced technology vehicles. There are a lot of questions. Is the electric grid we use powered by fossil fuels or renewable resources? Is it strong enough to charge many vehicles at the same time? And will people have access to charging stations while they're at work or while they're on the road? What's the future of biofuels? Can hydrogen refueling systems be created? Because we have to address all of these areas as we develop tomorrow's transportation systems. And the answers won't come easy, but good answers never do. But where there's a will, there is a way. So tonight, I'm asking you to join with us and help co-create a future where people, cars, and the earth live and work together in harmony. A future where transportation allows people to reach their potential without destroying the planet. A future that includes better cars, more fuel-efficient trucks, hybrids and electric cars, fuel cells and light rail, shared rides and other modes of transportation that we haven't even invented yet. A future filled not with the pain of oil dependence, air pollution and global warming, but with cleaner air, a healing planet, and friendly futuristic cars. It's not a dream. It's possible. It really is possible. So let's work together. Let's keep moving forward and let's create a better future for ourselves, our families, and our society. Thank you very much.
0: Our thanks to James Lentz, president of Toyota Motors USA, for his comments here today at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, and we'll have lots of questions from the audience. I think we'll try to structure these looking at the big picture macro, and then the industry, and then some, some specific things about the company and uh, and technologies. Uh, recently, the international agency, a, a former employee of the International Energy Agency, uh, told the British newspaper that that agency, which a lot of governments around the world rely on for, for the predictions about oil supply and prices deliberately overstates the known reserves of oil in the world in order to – the implication was to keep prices low, so it uh, keeps economies humming along. So my question is, it would, at Toyota, that obviously directly affects your business. Look, What do you look at in terms of – what are the assumptions you make about the future supply and price of oil uh, going forward? A lot of people think oil is going to be more expensive in the future.
1: Well, I think there's no question that um, oil is going to be more expensive. Um, we, uh, our, our model on future energy is that we will probably see peak oil sometime around the end of the next decade. So whether it's 2017 or 2020, it's going to be sometime in that, that neighborhood.
0: That's, I don't know if I've ever heard an auto executive say that so directly before. Well, that's, is that some, that's a house view at Toyota?
1: That's a house view at Toyota.
0: Are you out front or alone on that?
1: Um, I don't yeah. know. But I, I, I can tell you that, that that belief is what's driving our solutions of what will drive our future vehicles. So we're and, – and whether it's 2017 or 2020 or 2025 doesn't really make a difference yeah. because as the world demand exceeds the world supply, the cost of gasoline for cars, internal combustion engines, will be prohibitively expensive. Um, that makes it more feasible for battery and new generations of batteries to be well accepted. It probably also brings into play um, natural gas because we, we also have studied and we think natural gas will probably peak around 2050. And it's a clean source that's abundant in the United States. And it's relatively easy to convert vehicles to natural gas. The challenge becomes what you do with tanks and and, 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 how that impacts the overall, um, package space of a vehicle. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I, I, I think that we'll see, um, fuel cells, but I think that's going to be a long way down the road. Um, but that's, that, that, that's, that's our view on oil. It's, um, we have about 10, 12 years left. That's quite remarkable. So
0: that's really, if I hear you, that's directing where you're direct, uh, directing R&D and that sort of thing, so it's, you're pushing harder, faster, away from petroleum to other sources of uh,
1: battery and liquid fuels? Yeah, and, and, and part of that is if you look at uh, the hybrid g- synergy drive system, that was developed to basically mate electric motors to an engine of some type. Mm-hmm. Today that's internal combustion gas. We've had a concept vehicle at some of the auto shows that's CNG. Um, it is the the interface that will be used with fuel cells, and any other fuels that may come up in the future. Uh, so our the backbone of our system is going to be hybrid synergy drive, and that's why we invest the dollars to pr- to perfect that engine going forward, that system. Do you have any interest in
0: preference in uh, biofuels that come from plants versus algae, or do you sit back and do not have a horse in that race of, of which type of biofuel technology is going to win the day? Because a lot of
1: people here in Silicon Valley are very interested in that and uh – um, we 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 do research in different biofuels. Uh, we we are we have done research into algae. Um, I, I think the other thing that we have to make sure that we all understand is biofuels are great, but as we look to the future, water is probably going to become a more scarce commodity than gasoline. So we have to make sure that whatever the solutions are in the future in terms of biofuel, that it doesn't run us out of water any faster.
0: Right, and, and arable land. Let's look to uh, the industry. Um, the American auto industry has had a rough time recently. Uh, it's, it's contracted. Uh, recently there's been some positive signs uh, about General Motors, and yet I think even the industry acknowledges that auto sales in the U.S. are not going to go back to what they were, what, 15, 16 million cars a year. Um, how do you see that the, the, the growth path
1: of the industry overall in the next few years? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think they will be back to 15, 16 million. When? Um, well, my crystal ball, <laughs> um, if, if, if you take a look at the industry over the last 40 years and, and you plot the, the growth curve of the industry and you plot the recessions of the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s against that curve, um, it was fairly predictable that we were headed towards an industry of about 18 million. And, and if you look at what happened during the last three major recessions, the first oil recession in the 70s, the second in the 80s and the 90s, from the peak of the auto industry to the trough during the business cycle, the average drop was 23%. If you looked at the year 2000, the industry hit 17.4 million. You apply that same model that's worked quite well, And you would have predicted that the industry would have fallen to about 13.4. In 2008, the industry fell to 13.2, right where we thought the model would put it. Unfortunately, this year is going to be 10.4. So from peak to trough, this industry in this cycle has dropped 40%, almost twice what anyone would have predicted based on the last 40 years. So if... With that drop, when you redraw that curve, you still see industries, the trend line still gets to 15 to 16 million, and it gets there probably by about 2015. There are things that could influence that that may take either more time or less time. Uh, The erosion of wealth uh, as a result of the stock market drop or the impact of housing may have it take longer. But on the other side, if you look at the pent-up demand of vehicles, the average car on the road today is 9.3 years old. It's older than they've ever been. So they're – and the population's still growing. So, you know, odds are that we will make it to there by 2015. It's possible it could be 2013 or, or 2014. But we're, we're convinced that the market will be 15 or 16 million again. Let's discuss some trends that may be – sort of some headwinds
0: that, that may be in play there. Um, recently, I read a, a comment from the former uh, chief engineer at General Motors who recently retired and said, "If you, I asked my teenage daughter if she would to give up her iPhone or her car, she might choose her car because young people these days their social life revolves around uh, social networking and their phone. When we used to get a car and, and that was our, our freedom and, and go see right. our friends. So there's whether there's some s- um, demographic and structural changes add to that." Uh, moves toward transit-oriented development, concern about carbon, city car shares. It seems like there's some things pushing back
1: on, on auto sales, and, and maybe America's love affair with the car might be changing a little right. bit. Well, and, and I think part of it is I, I think what's going to happen in the future is we may redefine how people consume cars. I think mm-hmm. you're right. Car shares are going to make a big difference. I think if you look at one of the big major trends going on in America today, it's the reurbanization of cities. You know, San Francisco is a very mature urban environment, but Portland, Charlotte, Indianapolis, a bunch of cities you really wouldn't think about as urban centers are now redeveloping these urban centers, and it's being driven by boomers retiring, uh, downsizing, moving from the suburbs and back into the cities. And it's also being driven by Gen Y. As is, is they now hit some of their peak earning years, they want to be where it's exciting and where it's fun. You know, I, I have... Two boys, my, my eldest is twenty-eight, and you know, he's in in Nashville and he wanted a, an urban loft so he could walk to restaurants and walk to things. So you're right, that's gonna impact things. It just may bring out more ride sharing, it's gonna change mm-hmm. the size and shape of cars, it may change the number of cars per household. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the number of households continuing to grow, and if you look at the population continuing to grow, it still points even with those changes. To industries in the neighborhood of 15, 16 million.
0: Question from the audience, uh, which uh, reads Do y'all invest in public transport? Hmm. I mean, other companies, oil companies, are think- thinking about fundamentally changing their business they're in, uh, and other companies, transportation companies, may have diversified to other kinds of things. So, would you, um, there's some talk recently about companies in Detroit getting in back into the rail business, which they used to be in. Is that at all an issue for Toyota?
1: Um, probably not. I mean, we're looking at various forms of private ownership or public ownership. Um, we do, uh, in Japan at least, and other parts of the world, we do build some mass transportation things like buses, mm-hmm. smaller size buses that, in, at some point in time, are going to become popular in congested and crowded urban cities. But but I think the other thing that we're looking at is what what is mobility going to be like in the future? If if we're right. And the, the environment of urban cities changes. And we have more pathways, more walkways, um, more opportunity for single little transportation pods, as an example, to be part of uh, urban life. I, I think we're studying that going down the road as opposed to maybe branching out into airlines or something else.
0: Now that VW, Porsche has overtaken Toyota as the number one car company in the world, that's year-to-date sales, I think, of 4.4 versus 4 million. What's Toyota's plan to get back to number one?
1: Well, it was never important for us to be number one in the first place. Oh, come on. I'm serious. (laughs) Well, put it this way. We're not number one in the U.S. I mean, at the time that all that conversation was going on, we were a distant third. Unfortunately, with the implosion of the auto industry... We moved up a notch to number two, and we're knocking at the door to number one. But but quite frankly, it really, truly has never been a goal of ours. You're not going to walk around our corporate offices and see banners or buttons saying, we want to be number one in volume. Where we want to be number one is with owner loyalty and in the hearts and minds of our customers. And that truly is what drives us to be number one. Because quite frankly, in the end, when you add up all the sales numbers, they're going to be what they're going to be. If we do the best job we can and our dealers provide the, the best service to our customers and the best experience, our, our volume will come naturally. And if we're number one or number three, it doesn't really make a difference. I've spent a fair amount of time with and at GM
0: uh, in the last 18 months. Being number one was very important to them, and maybe that's part of – I think they were hung up on it, being the biggest when they shouldn't have been the biggest. And maybe So what are your thoughts about GM and their latest uh, – you know, how they're coming out of their bankruptcy and how they are as a competitor?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, I think – Old General Motors, old management General Motors, losing number one was really important to them. Huge ego. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that was just the, the nature of, of of the company at that time. Um, I think as they have peered over the edge of the abyss going through this, I think that's probably changed. I think it's less about volume and it's more about adding value mm-hmm. uh, to customers. Um you know, they're, they're still going to go through some difficult times. This industry, while it may be large five or six years down the road, the growth from month to month right now is growing in tents. I mean, we're going from a nine point, or a 10.4 million industry to this month that might be a 10.6. The next month might be a 10.8. So we're not seeing a U-shaped rebound in, in the car business. Um, there are still a lot of challenges that General Motors has right now. Um, their balance sheet looks good. They've got a lot of cash. Um, but they're thanks to all of us. <laughs> yes. Um, but they're going to be going through the consolidation of their brands. Um, and that's going to be a very difficult thing over time to, to try and move those Saturn buyers back over to the Chevrolet fold to make sure that they maintain as much volume as they can
0: that presents an opportunity for Toyota to grab market share. And some people see the U.S. auto industry, both the foreign-based uh, manufacturers and others, moving to the American South. Is that going to happen? Um, we already have manufacturing
1: there, obviously. Um, I, I, I don't know. That's, that, that's a decision that they're going to have to make. We, you know, We have manufacturing. We have one plant in Mexico. We have a plant in Texas. But the vast majority of our manufacturing – whether it be vehicle or parts, is all in the industrialized South. And
0: you had a a factory there that was built that didn't come online that I think was going to build Highlanders
1: or Priuses. Is that going to open up um, to build more cars in the U.S.? At some point in time. That's the the plant in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Um, We we built that plant as our economic model said that the low in the industry would be about $13 and that we needed the production capacity to do that. And you're right. It, initially, it was going to be a Highlander plant. Uh, but then as we saw record fuel prices in 08, um, we moved Highlander. It's now starting its production in Indiana. We moved the production of full-size truck from Indiana to Texas to, to help deal with that. And the plan is that it will be Prius. It's just difficult to say when, because in the case of Prius, uh, we have to look at what the global demand of hybrids are going to be. And right now it 's difficult to tell where that is, because Japan is an example. Japan typically sells about sixty to seventy thousand hybrids a year. They have an order bank right now of over two hundred thousand hybrids because of government stimulation that gave additional dollars to hybrid vehicles so until all of that settles out and we now and we can we can tell what average demand is it 's probably too early to put a time frame on when we're going to be there. We will be there in time, and the plan is it will be Prius. Let's pick up on the two things there. Well, the Prius, Um, do
0: you make money on uh, Priuses that you sell now? For a long time, I know you sold it at a loss. Um, Are you making money on every Prius today? Yes. Uh, And as far as government stimulation, you mentioned Japan. The cash for clunkers gave a, a, a temporary jolt uh to the U.S. auto industry. What, was there any lasting effect, and what was the net impact of uh, both the fuel efficiency and maybe changing the brand mix of what the cars people traded in and, and what they walked out the door with?
1: Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. In my mind, Clunkers was really designed to do three different things. Um, the one was to stimulate auto sales that would stimulate manufacturing and keep people employed, and it definitely did that. Um, we increased our production by about 100,000 vehicles. We sold about 130,000 vehicles through this. Same thing happened with General Motors, happened with Ford, happened with Honda and others. So it did help to stimulate the economy. Um, The other thing that it did was it did help get more inefficient fuel vehicles off the road. And I can only speak to Toyota's numbers because I don't have the rest of the industry. But in our case, we sold about 130,000 vehicles. Uh, if you look at the top ten vehicles industry-wide that were purchased, they were all fuel-efficient vehicles. Corolla was number one. I think Camry was number three. Prius was top five. RAV4, which is a small SUV, was in there. And if you look at the vehicles that were turned in, they were all, for the most part, domestic SUVs that were turned in. Our experience of our 130,000 vehicles, if you look at the vehicle turned in versus the vehicle purchased, in one year those customers will save 31 million gallons of gasoline. And at $3 a gallon, that's almost $100 million that customers won't have to pay for gasoline but can put into other parts of the economy. So I think it was very effective there. And and the third piece that a lot of people missed, I think, is the average amount of rebate that the federal government paid uh, was about $4,200. If you look at registration fees sales tax. You could take it even further and look at income tax paid by the sales associate on commissions or dealerships. But in California, as an example, the average vehicle probably generated about $3,000 worth of tax revenue for state and local municipalities. So to a great degree, what this program did, it allowed the federal government to transfer some of that tax revenue from the federal government to the states that desperately needed it. And, and I think that's kind of hidden in everything that took place and really has been a big boost uh, to local governments because the, the number one generator of tax revenue in local communities are car dealerships.
0: But now that Cash for Clunkers is over, aren't trucks back at the top of the uh, number one selling or two of the three uh, best-selling cars in the country? Are, are, are trucks... And, and Toyota takes lumps for the, the, the halo effect of the Prius providing a green sheen to Toyota. And yet you're selling a lot of Tundras that are big gas guzzlers, uh, which I know the company says are, are helping fund the, the Prius research. So how does that play out?
1: Well, I wish I was selling as many Tundras as you might think. Um, because our, our Tundra business actually is not very good. Um, but, but I think if you, if you look at the car volumes, um, Yes, F-150 is still there. Yes, Silverado is still there. But there are a lot of passenger cars that make up all the next positions. Camry, Corolla, Accord, Civic, Prius is up there. Small SUVs are up there. Um, Because part of it is, if if you look at the overall full-size truck market, that market peaked in 2005 at roughly 2.5 to 2.6 million vehicles. This year, it's going to probably come in around 1.1, maybe 1.2 million. Uh, and that's really being driven by the difficult economic times and the impact that the recession has had on construction starts. Um, as much as I'd love to figure a way to put a ladder rack on a Prius, I haven't figured that out yet. And as a result, there is still a need for people to have full-size trucks. That said, if you look at the composition of who is buying full-size trucks in 2005 and who's buying full-size trucks today. The, what we call the, the image purchase people that were buying trucks for image, for the most part, they have left the full-size truck market. They're going elsewhere. And what's left, this 1.2, 1.5 million that we think it will recover to, are really needs-based full-size truck buyers. Because there still is not a replacement for a full-size truck.
0: We have a number of questions about the Prius. You you referred to this earlier, but there are questions that want to know specifically when people in San Francisco can get a plug-in Prius. Uh, Not a a test one, but when when do you really come into market with a plug-in Prius? Um,
1: We haven't set the exact date yet. Um, We will globally um, start shipping about 500 test vehicles. The U.S. will get about 150 of those. They're being produced uh, November, December, January. So they'll come to the U.S. probably the first quarter of the year. Um, based on what we learned from that experience about durability of the battery and everything else, we'll decide when we start bringing it in. If, if I were to venture a guess, it's going to be probably somewhere around 2012. Uh, but I can't tell you if that's the beginning or the end or it might slip. It all depends on the experience that we have with the, with the plugins.
0: Question from the audience. Can you comment on the recent safety concerns about Toyota's accelerators? Uh, how is such safety uh, systematically tested
1: hmm. um, as you can imagine everything we do is tested for safety um, the the situation with the accelerators on our product is fairly complex the the root cause of what's happening is that floor mats are becoming entrapped by the accelerator pedal And that can happen a number of different ways. Um, All of our vehicles have little clips that you clip down your floor mat to. If those clips either break loose or they're not used, in the floor mat, submarines under the accelerator pedal, it's possible as you step down on the accelerator that that pedal could become trapped on that mat. Uh more likely scenario that takes place is people stack mats on top of each other. Uh, it, it's especially true in the, in the snow belt areas that people will take a big rubber mat and throw it on top of their carpet mat. It's not anchored. It slides, and it impinges on that, on that, that pedal. So we have uh, requested that our owners take their floor mats out of the driver's side and put them in a trunk uh, until we can develop a vehicle-based solution uh, to modify the vehicle to make it less likely that this pedal can get trapped. Um, and if people decide they want to keep their mats, my wife is one. She drives a Prius, and I can't get her to take her mat out of her car. So I told her, as long as you keep it clipped down, and as long as you don't you know, put multiple mats, and as long as when you come back from the car wash, you're sure that thing's clipped down, it's okay. Um, and we're working right now, our engineers, as well as NHTSA, with a vehicle-based fix that even if customers use too many mats, it will become highly unlikely that the pedal can be entrapped on the mat.
0: But if that's the case, wouldn't this also be happening with other manufacturers? It is. Okay. Uh, James Lentz is president of Toyota USA. He's our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Another question from the audience. How much time and energy does Toyota USA spend on lobbying Congress?
1: Hmm. Um, it's a difficult. It's difficult to quantify that. Um, we have an office in Washington, D.C., um, and it's 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 difficult on where you draw the line between lobbying and helping inform both Congress and the administration on all the changes going on in our industry and. And to help frame how difficult some of those changes might be, and how easy some of those changes might be, I, I think we have we have learned from uh, the Obama administration is they want to engage the auto manufacturers. They want to engage Toyota. They want to have a dialogue with us on what's going on. that's That's very different than past administrations. So I, I think our people are much busier um, uh, working with the administration. On, on all kinds of requests that they might have about our industry. And, and it truly is to learn what's going on. So I'm not sure if you define that as lobbying or not. Um,
0: here's, here's another one. Um, the, in 2002, California passed a law known as the Pavley Law that set some emissions standards uh, for cars in California, and the Alliance, for Automobile, uh, Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers went to court and over a period of seven years litigated that and tried to overturn that. And then in May of 2000, uh, May this year, there was this uh, ceremony in the Rose Garden at the White House where the president was surrounded by his uh, regulators and CEOs. I don't know who was there from Toyota, but I know, yeah, okay. <laughs> you were there. Yes. Uh, that was quite a change. So the question is, what did the auto companies, and basically The the laws that California put in place in 2002 are now national standards, and you've referred to them, and some of the people, Josephine Cooper and others who work for you, have touted this deal. What did the industry gain by litigating against California for seven years?
1: Well, I I think what what we gained was one national standard, and that was what was most important uh, because how California and how the federal government uh, was going to regulate both mileage from a CAFE standpoint and CO2 uh, varied. And our ability to be able to uh, design and produce cars to meet individual state standards, because it wasn't just California. There were 16 other states with California emission standards that we would have had to meet each state's standard separately. Well, the way that California people
0: say it is they wanted the California standard to become the national standard, which often is
1: exactly what happens, and it's what happened in this case. So couldn't that have happened seven years earlier? I, that, that I can't tell you because I wasn't around seven years later. I, I just know that um, had California's standard gone through and all the other 15 states enacted a identical standard, um, it would have been a logistics nightmare for us to try and distribute cars around the country. And you would have customers in certain states... They wouldn't be able to get certain vehicles, um, so it was it was, I think, worth having a more aggressive federal standard, in exchange for having everyone chasing the same standard. And and and, I, and I'll, I'll tell you the, the standard of getting to thirty five point five, which is what we're going to have to get to by twenty sixteen, is not going to be easy by any means.
0: And I, I've had this conversation with people at GM and elsewhere, and they say that uh, the engineers inside said. If they had the resources, they could meet some of those things. But the problem was the lawyers were running the show and they were litigating and fighting. And they were also, as they had to, and you probably were too, doing a little bit of hedging in case those laws passed and you had to comply with them. You have to be you can't be flat footed. You
1: gotta do a little R and D in case you have to meet them. Uh, so yeah. Well, you know, the, the the challenge is, I mean, you you have to meet the regulation, but at the same time you still have to satisfy your consumer needs. Um it, you know, the example of full-size trucks and Prius, sure, if all we sold in the United States were Prius, we could meet that standard tomorrow. But unfortunately, that's not going to satisfy all consumers' needs. So you still have to be able to build full-size trucks or, or vans for families or SUVs to meet those consumer needs and balance that with having to meet these standards. Um, you know, is, is it technically possible to meet those standards? Of course it is but the cost of meeting that, consumers may balk at. I mean, to be able to meet the standards, you're going to have um, a total new family of engines that cost billions of dollars to develop, and you're going to have to develop new lightweight materials to put in automobiles that still have to be able to meet crash test, and typically those exotic metals are much more expensive. So the mm-hmm. question becomes, how much are consumers going to be willing to pay? Um, you know, the fear that a lot of manufacturers have is that for some reason gasoline prices stay steady or drop. And now you have these more fuel-efficient cars that are probably going to have less power, maybe meet less of their needs, and if fuel prices come, stay low, uh, it's going to be a disconnect with the consumer. question from
0: uh, someone listening on the Internet. Uh, how worried are you that Chevrolet is coming to market with a plug-in hybrid, the Volt, uh, before Toyota? Uh
1: we think that it's most important that we have the best product to market and not the first. Would I love to be first? Of course I would. But I, I want to make sure that I have the best product to market. And there's a, there's a big difference between what uh, GM Volt is, is going to become and what Prius and Prius plugins ins are. Uh, there, there's a fundamental difference in the operation of those hybrid systems. Uh, in the case of Toyota, we have a parallel system. It can run on battery electricity, it can run on a gasoline engine, or it can run on the combination of both. In the case of the Volt, um, it's going to run whatever its range is going to be on electricity. Um, the battery will be dead at that point in time, and you will then run on the gasoline engine. Mm-hmm. So we think that, that our solution is is a more consumer-friendly solution long term. So the advocates of the Volt say
0: that what seventy percent of uh, daily trips in the United States are less than forty miles. That the average person can run the Volt most of the time on that electric battery and only use the internal combustion engine uh, when they go further than was forty or fifty miles.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're not. No one's quite sure what that range is going to be yet, or what yeah. what the cost of that battery is going to be. Um, we, we we just feel that that our solution. Um, for existing Prius and plug-ins and for future applications um, allows us to, uh, a much, uh, much more broad range of vehicle applications down the road than, than just putting bigger, heavier batteries in a vehicle that once they uh, are down, uh, it becomes a 400-pound you know, battery anchor that you're dragging around.
0: As all of these cars scale up and they rely currently on lithium-ion batteries, the term peak lithium is peak everything these days, but uh, is the supply, the global supply of lithium at all going to be a a constraint uh, as more and more people use lithium-ion batteries? I
1: I, I don't know that for certain. Uh, You know, I know there was a big find I think just recently in Brazil of a lithium field that's fairly large. Um, And and, and I think part of it is, I I don't think lithium is necessarily the end-all. I think lithium may just be a, a transition to whatever the next generation of battery might be. Right. So I wouldn't get too hung up on lithium being people running out are, of lithium. Yeah, people in Silicon
0: Valley are already betting on that one too. <laughs> um, the another angle on this: people look at this the if say if five or six auto companies had a Prius home run as you clearly had, it still wouldn't get the number of totally of uh, hybrids out in the marketplace to a meaningful place in terms of carbon reduction. And that leads some people, such as Intel, uh, former chairman and CEO Andy Grove, to say we need to retrofit exit the existing stock. That th- th- this, the market can't deploy, you can't make, manufacture hybrids fast enough, consumers won't buy them fast enough. So what, have you thought that through, sort of the retrofit and de- of, of, um, existing vehicle stock?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. I know you're in the business
0: selling new cars, but...
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm not sure if that is really feasible to do. Um, And and, and I'll I'll tell you why, because um, we have vehicles today that we would love to wave our magic wand and say, let's make this a hybrid vehicle. But it hasn't been engineered for the batteries or the technology. Sure. And you can't just... Make a space and squeeze those puppies in there.
0: And no one wants to be a guinea
1: pig and be the first one. On, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, it's something you could play with, but I don't, I don't think that from an engineering standpoint that, that today it's feasible, although I don't know how much uh, engineering resource we've put behind it to see how we could convert that. But, but I know for existing products that I would love to make hybrids today, It's it's really not feasible to do until there are platform changes with the overall vehicle.
0: Number of companies in Silicon Valley are, are working on, uh, electric startups. And there's a question about whether, uh, it's the incumbent giants such as yourself or, uh, you know, the innovator's dilemma and other books say that uh, the biggest innovations often come from the upstarts. There are a lot of, uh, small electric companies, uh, some of them backed by General Electric and other large mm-hmm. firms, uh, trying to break into the auto industry. Um, so what do you see the, the chances of, 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 in 10 years, some names that we barely know today will be established, perhaps niche, but established automakers?
1: It's a possibility. I, you know, I, I think the, the, the breakthrough is going to be in the battery. Um, I don't think it's necessarily rocket science to design the car itself. Um, but I think designing the battery uh, and being able to not only design the battery but being able to manufacture the battery with zero defects is really the key. I think the the chemistry to build a a large-scale lithium-ion battery has been around for a while. But the key is being able to build it defect-free so you don't have heat buildup. I think that's the big issue and understanding what the durability is, how far you can charge the battery down and charge it back up, how many cycles you have left in this battery. So in, in our case... It's about the quality and the durability of the battery. Um, but it's, it's, it's possible somebody could come up with breakthroughs in some battery technology.
0: And some people think that's most likely to happen. I think Japan has a fairly well-acknowledged lead in this technology. The Americans play in bad catch-up, and the future, perhaps, is China. Warren Buffett famously invested in a Chinese battery company. So are you comfortable? Where do you think the the lead, the next innovations are going to come from on the battery front?
1: It it could come from anywhere. You know, if if I were a gambling man, I think I'd put my money on Toyota, but I'm a little bit biased uh, because we have a joint venture with Panasonic. Uh, and they are the leaders. Panasonic and Sanyo are the global leaders in battery technology. So, you know, we've been working on this for a long, long time. There is a separate engineering group that all they do is they eat, sleep, and drink batteries. Uh, and they've been doing this for many, many years. So, uh, I, I would put our money on Toyota. Another, uh, model question. Uh, Dell revolutionized
0: the computer industry by going, uh, doing direct sales and bypassing the middle person and, and, and selling over the internet. And there's a car company, uh, based in California called Coda that is an electric startup that aims to do this with electric cars. So do you think that the, that the, uh, the dealer system is set in stone will always be through us or will there be some kind of internet direct model, uh, in cars like there has been in so many other industries?
1: Um, other manufacturers have tried to squeeze the dealer out of uh, out of the value chain, um, and they haven't been very successful. At their political, and, yeah. Well, I mean, parallel. part of it is th- there are there is the politics part of franchise law protection. I mean, there are, there are many states across the country where you can either be a manufacturer distributor or a retailer, not both. Um, but but the legislation aside. Um, occasionally we will operate a dealership if we've had a dealer that's gone out of business. And I can tell you, we know how to make cars. We're not very good at selling cars. Um, And I would say that's probably the case with most of the manufacturers. Uh, They need to be careful what they ask for uh, because the dealers add tremendous value in this chain. They understand and create a market for used cars. If it was just up to manufacturers... Um, your trade-ins, either we wouldn't take in and trade or we just wholesale these things off and the value of those vehicles would go down. Um, the ability to service your vehicles uh, is really done by the dealers. Um, the, the, the impact that dealers have on the overall community. Uh, if you go to a car dealer, I mean, typically the first the, the first place you go to if you're trying to do fundraising for anything is your local car dealer. So from a community standpoint, from a value-added standpoint, I wouldn't be too quick to eliminate car dealers. Another uh, model is this, uh, Project Better Place, which is sort of uh,
0: the notion of it's a Silicon Valley startup where uh, people, rather than owning a battery, will swap their battery out and go into gas stations, and they have these neat little videos on the Internet. Um, and that that's an interesting model. They're using existing platforms, but do you see any viability for that in Toyota? Uh,
1: it's something that we're studying. I know Nissan's studying. I know a mm-hmm. lot are studying to see is is a possible alternative.
0: Um, okay. The... Uh, couple of questions here about culture between Japanese and American companies in terms of innovation, the, the brands. So let's address that in terms of uh, whether you think that uh, one question here is about uh, whether Japanese workers or American workers are more innovative uh, or the cultures of the companies are more innovative. Hmm.
1: Um, you know, I've, I've, I've worked for domestic years and years ago, and I've been with Toyota now for 26 years. Um, Toyota has a very strong culture. We call it the Toyota Way, where you know we don't go through seminars and learn the Toyota Way. It's just kind of passed on from from generation to generation, and it's about respect for people. It's about uh, kaizen or constant improvement. It's about always challenging yourself, and it's about teamwork. And I, I don't think that that. It's very similar to principles that Drucker had as well in terms of American management. Um, I don't think it's necessarily unique to Toyota. I don't think it's necessarily um, an example of everything that takes place in Japan. But I I can tell you from our corporation standpoint that 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 North Star that we have, those guiding principles, allows us to be much more innovative um, allows ideas to bubble up through the company, um, allows um, a lot of discussion, a lot of consensus that takes place. Sometimes it probably slows our decision-making process down. Um, but I think the, the great ideas still bubble up through that. So for us, it's
0: it's definitely an advantage. Jim Lenz is president of Toyota Motors USA. He's our guest at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club today. We have time for just one last question. I'd like to combine uh, two, and one is about sort of the uh, the elitist aspects of plug-in hybrids, uh, which this question says is designed for the wealthy because you have to own a garage. I think there's someone clearly in San Francisco who knows how much a <laughs> garage costs or a parking space costs in San Francisco. So how do you make plug-ins? Uh, uh, accessible to the masses. And, and, and part of that, another, is sort of you mentioned that the Bay Area is, is a trend-setting market. And, and what do you see here that you think will, will uh, deploy more broadly across the United States as the, the future happens first here in sure. California?
1: Well, you know, I, I think that's an excellent question. That's that's why we're involved in this project in Boulder, Colorado, as an example. Um, and that's why part of our sustainable mobility is really understanding the urban environment. Because I think you're exactly right. There are probably a smaller percentage of garageable cars in this city than a lot of parts of California. And that becomes a big issue unless you have a lot of charging stations on public streets or charging stations... At, uh, at at rail lines or at your place of work. The cities can't afford to build them? Yeah. So mm-hmm. the, the infrastructure on plug-ins are going to be a big part of it. And, and quite frankly, so is the overall grid. I mean, if you look at a place like San Francisco or you look at Santa Monica, California, um, if everyone gets home at 7 o'clock and plugs their, their hybrid in, uh, unless that grid is set up to take that, it's going to get rather dark rather quickly around here. So these are some of the things that we need to learn through this experiment with Boulder. That's another reason why we can't be too quick to market with with plug-ins because the overall infrastructure may not be able to support them, even though there's demand for overall consumers. You know, I I think in terms of what are we learning up here specifically, I think the whole concept of Mm -hmm. ride-sharing, especially with electric vehicles going down the road, I think we're learning a lot about what's happening up here in Northern California that I think will will carry through to a lot of urban areas across the country.
0: Our thanks to Jim Lentz, president of Toyota Motor USA, for his comments here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you all for coming. I'll see you next time on Climate One. Thank you. Thank you.